How blessed it is that we can come together this morning, having already had the opportunity of singing praises unto our great God of heaven, having already been able to lift up our thoughts together collectively in prayer, and to pray for so many wonderful and fantastic blessings that we've enjoyed, and for God's continued well-being toward us on, in that same behalf. Indeed, as we come together today, perhaps with expectations of warmer spring weather in the near future, our thoughts might be able to be brightened a bit, but may I suggest that God's Word is the greatest of the brightnesses of all. In the 105th verse of the longest chapter in all the Old Testament, we read, Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Let us open then the pages of the Word of God together this morning and look at a lesson in which I've entitled, The Christian Pressure Chamber. I would hope that the title would at least be a bit on the side of inquisitive as we ponder the nature of what God's Word might have to say to us about the nature of those pressures that you and I as Christians might be called upon and asked to face. By way of introduction, some of the thoughts that we can initially share would not in any sense be shocking or surprising. We understand that the culture, the world, if you will, in which we live, extends and in fact showers upon us pressures that might well be sometimes extensive in nature. We're expected to do more with seemingly less. We're expected to excel on the job, in the family, on the workplace, in the community. We sometimes wonder how we're to find enough time in the 168 hours a week to do all of that. All the while, when those pressures are heaped upon us, we can see often that they can cause difficulties and strifes as we tend to value some things and put them in places of priority over other things which honestly are more important. All the while, those decisions can sometimes be difficult. They can sometimes be very challenging. Those kinds of statements, though, are not the center of the lesson this morning. Those kinds of pressures are not those to which we'll turn our attention. For you see, those that are Christians, in addition to those pressures, have another set of pressures. These are the ones to which we will focus our attention, the Christian pressure chamber. There at the bottom of that screen, I've asked you to consider this with me. We read texts such as 1 Peter 5 eight: Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. As Peter penned those inspired words, those were directed to those Christians that were scattered abroad, 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. Those Christians, you see, had to face the other pressure that there was a devil chasing them. There was a mighty foe opposing them. There was this great one, this enemy, this Satan, this diabolical one who was bent upon their destruction, and he tried with fantastic energy to accomplish that end. Now, Satan is not quite so concerned in a vicious manner against those that are already his own soldiers, those that are already in his army, but against those who are godly, those that are Christians, those who strive to oppose him in every facet and aspect of life. He is, in fact, very serious about claiming them. He is intent upon bringing everything against them that he can bring. I'd ask you to think with me this morning then about the Christian's pressure chamber. Over the next few moments, let's look at a few of the things that God's Word tells us that He will bring against us and be prepared mentally to understand that they shall come and perhaps in that way be better able to oppose them and to conquer them, to overcome the fierceness of what He has to offer us. The first thing is you and I are under pressure to apostatize. 
That is a rather interesting term. It simply means to give up the faith. You and I are under pressure to lose our faith, though once we have been Christians, to walk away from it, to live in a way that's entirely in harmony with what the devil would find appreciable. In fact, the Bible warns us on many occasions that the Christian can be lost. It is certainly a very serious misteaching and a false one entirely at that to think that once a person is saved, he or she is eternally in that state regardless what he or she may do, how he or she may live, what he or she may say. In fact, the Scriptures do not teach that. In 2 Peter 2, verses 18 through 22, I might especially direct our attention to verses 20, 21, and 22. On that occasion, the inspired apostle, for, as he makes note of those who had been freed from the entanglements of the world, he said, if we again become entangled therein, and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of salvation than after having known it to have turned aside from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog that turneth again into his vomit, the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Is it possible for a Christian then to so again become lost? Peter said so. May we thus never be in the position of thinking that there is eternal safety in the sense that we can be complacent or we can live in apathy, for that is not the case. In fact, notice some examples of those in the Bible who were in this very position. Some of the last letters that Paul wrote, notice in 1 Timothy 1 verse 19, we specifically read about two gentlemen one of which whose name was Hymenaeus, the other whose name was Alexander. These, you see, had walked away from the faith. They had apostatized. And later we also read about Demas in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, who loved this present world and forsook Paul. Can we not see that there is eternal danger in such behavior? We are under pressure to apostatize. Consider these admonitions that the Bible gives us. Profound, powerful, potent, but these texts would certainly be worth our attention. In Revelation 2, verse 10, to that church at Smyrna, that church that would shortly endure ten figurative days of exceedingly great trial, the apostle of love said, Be thou faithful until death, and I will give thee the crown of life. Be faithful unto death. Though trials are upon you, though difficulties abound, don't you apostatize, don't you lose sight of the faith before you. You remain faithful until death. We also notice texts such as Ephesians 6, verse 10, the one that Brother Fred read a few moments earlier, where we are again admonished to be strong and to understand that in the power of the might of God we shall prevail. And he explains in the next few verses those actions that are incumbent upon us. We are to panoply ourselves with the armor of God that we would be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We see, perhaps finally, that text in James 5, 19, the closing two verses of that great book, where we see in terms of those who have apostatized the seriousness of their situation. Brethren, if any of you do err from the faith, let him know that he which restoreth the one who is erred shall save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins to save a soul from death. Might we see then that it's eternally serious to be in a position of having apostatized from the faith 
to stand before God and hear him and hear the blessed Savior say, You once were faithful, but you are not now. May we understand that that's one element in the Christian's pressure chamber. Let's look at a second one. The second one we might note is the pressure that's upon us to be lukewarm. The pressure that's upon us, you see, to not live to the highest of callings that's given to us. We are constantly urged to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we have been called. To quote both Ephesians 4.1 and Colossians 1 verses 9 and 10. Might we ask, that calling that you and I have been given, it is not a calling that, for instance, is likened unto a member of a civic organization or a social club. The church is a singular organization on earth with the opportunity and power for the salvation of the human soul. Thus, it's not a light matter, nor is it trivial in any regard. And yet, how often do we find that you and I are tempted to be lukewarm, to just slide along on the roadway of Christianity, not really exerting ourselves as much as we could, just sort of floating along and allowing the current of life to take us where it will, striving all the while to remain a degree of faithfulness toward God, but also to enjoy all that the world has to offer. That is a very strong temptation, isn't it? And especially in a materialistic, blessed country as you and I are in this land, that is ever more pertinent than it would be in other places on earth. The pressure to be lukewarm. Notice some of the statements in the Bible that address that. In Matthew 6, verse 24, in the very heart of the Sermon on the Mount, our Savior said, speaking of things about the serving of masters, "...you cannot serve two masters." For either you will hate the one and love the other, or else you will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. What the Lord uttered in such plainness, nonetheless, Satan opposes so greatly. He tries to sell us on the fact you can serve me and God at the same time. It is no hurtful matter. It is not dangerous at all. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. In fact, ten verses later, he said, in verse 33 of that same chapter, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The Lord's cause, the Lord's church, the Lord's matters must be first. He shall not accept second place. In fact, He'll not even accept a co-equal number one. He must be alone in first. We can see perhaps one other text that drives that point home in such seriousness that it's really a profound matter. Return with me to the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3. Beginning in verse 14 of that chapter and continuing through the end of that chapter, the inspired apostle, penning the very words of Jesus, addressed the church at Laodicea. No doubt as we each think about that church, having often read those verses, we're reminded that there was one singular matter that described them. Jesus said, I know thy works. They couldn't fool him. And he went on to say, you are neither cold nor hot. He said, I wish you were cold or hot, but because you are neither cold nor hot but lukewarm, and that's the word the Lord used, I will spew thee out of my mouth. You make me sick, Laodicea. You make me sick. I wish you were either cold or hot, but you're neither one. You, in fact, think you have need of nothing. You, in fact, consider that you're rich and you're possessed with great wealth and all things are well. But then, notice the Lord said, much perhaps to your surprise, you're poor, you're miserable, you're wretched, you're blind, and you're naked. 
the very congregation who thought they had it all was bereft of everything worthy of anything. You see, they thought they had it all, and they maybe did have a lot of riches, but they, hadn't, they did not have the Lord, and thus they had nothing. That same temptation comes to you and me today to be lukewarm, to not extend ourselves for the cause of Christ, to slide by on the slideway of life. Might I encourage you to note some admonitions that strongly challenge us to think better about this issue. Rather than being lukewarm, the Lord Himself said in Matthew 12, verse 30, He that is not with me scattereth abroad. It's not possible to straddle the fence with the Lord. We're either on His side and on fire for Him, or else we're in a terrible strait indeed. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul admonished the Corinthians, Be steadfast and always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Isn't that verb abound an interesting one? Not to simply try to do as little as we might, not to simply be satisfied with what would be less than the best we could do for him. He said abound in the works of the Lord. In Mark 12, verse number 30, as our Savior neared the end of his life in the flesh, he, in addressing of those gathered on that occasion, responded to what the greatest of all the commandments is. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. We notice that the word all is included in the inspired statements. We've seen two elements of this great pressure chamber. The pressure to be lukewarm, the pressure, as we noted at the outset, to deal in ways that are, in fact, that of apostasy. Let's look at a third element of pressure, another factor that Satan so strongly strives to bring against us. You and I recognize the pressure to conform to the world. We understand that there's now well over six billion people living on this planet. There, in fact, are a whole host and variety of lifestyles, countries, and ways of accomplishing things. We see that that world offers so very much. The strong tendency, of course, is to live in a way that it finds pleasing. To conform our life and our thinking and our disposition to what the world claims to be normal, claims to be acceptable, claims to be appropriate. When all the while, as we shall shortly see, what great danger there lies in that behavior. In James 1, verses 13 to 15, we read about the fact that lusts presented to us, when they reach their fulfillment, bring about sin. What is then the origination of that lust? James 4, verses 1 to 3 go on to tell us, it arises from our considerations of the longings of this world. Let's look more interestingly at some of the things concerning the desire to conform to the world. Notice that in Revelation 13, one of the most familiar texts in all that book directly addresses this very point. When we studied the book of Revelation some months earlier, we laid some emphasis on the mark of the beast and came to realize that that number 666 was helpful to us to understand the pressures under which those folks of that day found themselves. It related to that Roman Empire, Latinos. Notice that there was great desire on the part and pressure too on the part of those early first century Christians to conform to the way of Rome, to live in a way that the emperor finds successful and pleasing, to worship the way he dictates, to do that which he commands. For only then can you buy and sell and get gain. 
And our blessed Savior, through the wording of the book of Revelation, admonishes them, Do not allow the mark of the beast to rest upon you, but rather be sealed in your forehead with the mark of God. Revelation 9 and also chapter 10. Might we notice in regard to that some of these warnings concerning this very end. In 1 John 2 verses 15 to 17, with regard to the world, was it John who said, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world? For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. What a dramatic contrast. This which abideth forever versus this which passeth away. This which one is not to love, namely the world and all that it offers, versus the love that we should have for the Savior. Or consider yet another text in James 4, verse number 4. Here, as James again writes rather directly to these who were under such temptation, he said, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Such plainness of language, such directness of thought, may we never thus forget that the world is not our friend. Our world, virtue by virtue of the fact it's under control of Satan, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, is such that its desire is to cause us to move aside from faithfulness. To conform thereto is in fact described in Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. He said, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that in light of those matters, he continues, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Thus they were warned, do not conform, but be transformed. Those same words, of course, are just as pertinent and just as meaningful for you and me today. Not conforming to the world. Not becoming to the point where we deem and think that the world's decree on matters is appropriate and right. Remember, the world itself stands opposed to the blessings and wonders of God. I close that thought by calling your attention to 1 Timothy 6, verses 7 and 8. In the very last chapter of that book to 1 Timothy, we remember that this matter of conforming to the world is often for the purpose of gaining what the world has to offer. We desire to be complimented by the world and thus we behave like it. But in contrast, Paul said, We brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. Thus, if it is the matter that the world's offerings is what's causing us to desire to behave like it, to gain what the world has to offer, maybe we should more thoroughly ground ourselves in contentment. Understanding that what the world has to offer will lead to the damnation of our soul if we strive to conform to the world. Closely related to that is yet a fourth pressure. The pressure you see to please men. We understand how strong that pressure can be. From the time perhaps that we're just young and especially those high school years, we understand that it's a desirable thing usually to not be insulted and reviled and called out as different by others. And even as we grow older to an extent that pressure still exists. On the work site, in the community, other relationships we have, we are not always happy to be in a position of constantly being recognized as peculiar, to be called out as different and odd. When all the while, you see, the very opposite to that is thus to please men, 
to so conduct ourselves in a way that they approve of it. Notice the warnings the Bible would have to express to us in that way. I'm reminded of Absalom in 2 Samuel 15. Notice that he desired to please men. And in fact, he was successful. So successful was he that he brought the very regiment of his father to his knees. David, as the king, was forced to flee the palace under the onslaught of his own son. Isn't that tragic? Isn't that terrible? And yet, the same saga is played over and over again. Consider some passages also listed on that screen for your consideration. If we're considering seriously living in such a way to please men, shouldn't the following thought come to mind? Are men right with God? Are men in the majority approved by Him? We understand the answer to be no. In Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, we read, Enter ye into the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. And thus it logically follows that if it's our desire to please men, and most men are lost, then we are lost too. No simpler logical structure could be presented than that, could it? We are in a sad predicament when we allow the world to dictate the personal and ethical standards that we strive to follow. Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. Jesus said that in Luke 6, verse 26. If it's thus the case that the world approves of my life and yours and never a thing is said in contrary to our behavior, we should seriously rethink the way we're living. Woe unto you when all men think well of you and speak well of you. Perhaps another text that we could consider in that same vein. In John 12, verses 42 and 43, as we understand there were those of even the Savior's day who had a mental belief in Him, it would appear, but they would not confess Jesus in public. And the reason is given, for they'd be cast out of the synagogue. They love the interest and the approval and the compliment of men more than the endearing location of being close to the Savior. Again, that's a sad situation. Perhaps one final text to notice, interestingly seen in Galatians 1 verse 10. Paul wrestled with this thought, but didn't he take the marvelous and high road when he said, If I find myself to please men, I am not the servant of Christ. We can't have it both ways, can we? Thus, we see in this fourth pressure the reality that we should desire not to please men, but to please God. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 1, Paul's admonition to the Thessalonian brethren was simply to so conduct themselves that they pleased God. May that be our desire as well, to use the pages of the Word of God to instill within our hearts and minds a desire and a high nobility to walk pleasing unto God. We know that one direct consequence will be the world in many instances will not be pleased. The world will often revile and insult and look down upon our choices. They may call us names, but what matter is that? We understand that we are pleasing God and not men. These four pressures have set the stage for three more to come. Let us look at yet a fifth pressure that you and I in the Christian pressure chamber are called upon to face. In this fifth pressure... We notice an intense pressure to be dishonest. An intense pressure to so conduct ourselves in a way of dishonesty. 
we've noted, at least in passing, that the world offers many things, and more often than not, individuals are grasping at all that the world has to offer. And in not a few cases, deception is a part of acquiring that which the world has to offer. We're admonished, take advantage of others. Don't always come straightforwardly with the truth. It's all right to conceal, to deceive, to beguile, to mislead. All the while, as long as you can accomplish your ends and acquire that which you desire, everything is acceptable and all is fine. The message that the world has to portray is so often in words either directly or indirectly of that form. But might we notice that dishonesty is portrayed in the Scriptures in such a negative light. In fact, I would ask you to consider some passages. Who is the originator of lies? Who is the father of them? In John 8 verse 44, Jesus said, The devil's the father of them, and it has ever been so. In fact, the very first lie in all of creation, in all of existence, came about by whom? It was that occasion in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve had been given the command of God, and it was Satan who said, Ye shall not surely die. The very first lie ever told was that one. Eve believed it. She gave to Adam of that forbidden fruit. He also did eat, and sin entered the human family. Notice Satan told the first lie. In fact, his works opposed those of Christ himself, 1 John 3, 8. And it was for that purpose that Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Might we notice some other considerations about this end? What about dishonesty? Is it okay to tell what is sometimes called a white lie? Well, the Bible has a very different kind of a name for a white lie. In fact, that wording is never found in the Word of God. In fact, in Romans 12, verse 17, our desire should be to provide for things honest in the sight of all men. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that amazing? To conduct ourselves honorably, honestly, in the sight of all men. Romans 13, 13, let us walk honestly as in the day. There's that adverb, honestly. Might we remember that interesting text of Philippians 4, 8. What are those things upon which you and I as Christians should think? We will remember there's six things listed. We're to think on that which is true, honest, pure, just, lovely, and of good report. If there be any virtue, any praise, think on these things. Note the second element in the list, honest. If our mindset then dwells upon that which is honorable and honest, our actions and our speech will be no different. We will thus live in a way that is of highest honesty, and our world will take note of that. I've listed some other texts for your consideration. In the closing chapter of the Second Corinthian letter, verse 7 of chapter 13, we are told, again, as Paul admonished the Corinthians, to so fashion and conduct themselves in a way that is of honesty. And might I note that the actual word in the Greek is honorable. Is lying honorable? Ever. Is dishonesty and deception honorable? It is not. So much so that in Revelation 21.8, second to the last chapter in all the Bible, we have this interesting picture of who will enter heaven and who will not. In the previous chapter, Revelation 20, the scene of the great white throne judgment, we remember the books will be opened and each one will be judged by the things written in the books. 
Now, in consideration of that, who will not enter heaven? Liars. All those who tell and love lives, John said, will not enter heaven. That's a sobering reflection, isn't it? Young people, older ones alike, when you might be tempted to tell that lie just so that you're not put in a hard spot, to perhaps shade the truth or what might be said to bend it or stretch it, don't do it. The truth is not bendable. It's not ductile. It's not malleable. You can't twist it. The truth is simply straightforward as you and I know it to be. May we thus recognize that the pressure to be dishonest Though strong it may be, we should fight against it, panoply ourselves with a breastplate of righteousness, Ephesians 6, verses 10 and following. And notice that that helmet of salvation has within it the shield of faith, the consideration of feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, that gospel that is the truth of God. Notice yet a sixth pressure that is heaped upon us, a pressure that becomes so strong and so mighty it's a pressure to be lazy. A pressure to be lazy. We realize the interesting work in industrial character where machines often take some of the difficult work away from us. And though that's a wonderful thing in many ways, we're also tempted sometimes to be lazy in life. We're tempted to do far less than what we should, far less than what we could, far less than what God expects of us. That laziness is seen in wordings perhaps like this. Notice in Revelation 3, beginning in verse 1, as the church in Sardis is addressed, what was one of the characteristics that that church had? This church that found itself severely condemned by Jesus himself. This church that in part was lazy. There was work that they needed to do, and yet though they had a name that they professed, they didn't live up to it. They didn't follow through with those works that they ought to have done. Laziness. The Old Testament had condemned that in many ways. Go to the ant, thou sluggard, Proverbs chapter 6. The ant serves as an example of a laborer and worker who makes proper preparation, adequate activity. But you and I sometimes don't learn the lesson from some of God's most interesting and smallest of creatures. Notice that laziness is addressed in some other ways that remind us about the necessity of our works. And notice that work and laziness somewhat oppose each other fairly strongly. Philippians 2 verse 12, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We can't expect to stand lazy before God at judgment and find Him to be happy with us. We must work out our own salvation. In James 2 verses 17 and 18, Even so, if a man may say, Thou hast faith and I have works, Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Our lives should be described by good works, and those in abundance. For those abundant good works will not allow laziness, but will reach and redound to the glorious goodness of the work of God on earth. Laziness also seen in Revelation 22 verse 12. By what means will we be judged? On that day of judgment, John writes that each will be judged according to his works. What will you and I have to show at judgment? When God opens the book of my life, the life of Randy Bybee, what will he see? Will there be a list of works and accomplishment to the glory of his will? 
Or will that be about a half a page list and page after page of wasted time? Time doing things that were not useful in any sense for the cause of God. If that's the description of my life, I have every expectation that I'll be found displeasing. And I have every expectation the same will be true of others. We have upon this earth the allotment of the time of our life. And if we give that life in service to Him, we shall have those works that will be listed, not as though we've earned salvation, but because we did what the Lord commanded us to do. And doesn't that lead us to the seventh and the final of our pressures this morning? In this great pressure chamber of Christ, we see also the pressure to compromise the truth. We live in a world where it's often not a good thing at all to be called dogmatic. Not a good thing at all to be called a fundamental Christian. Not a good thing at all to stand four square on this book. It's so much easier to have a relative kind of consideration. You do what you like, let me do mine, and don't ever ask me about it. And both of us will be fine. If you and I had a nickel for every time words or sentiments like that were expressed, and it is not our intent to insult, it is not our intent to belittle, it's our intent to ask, is that what the Bible teaches? If it is, that's a wonderful doctrine, and we should each follow it, but if it's not, we should understand souls are in eternal jeopardy. For you see, the Bible is not pluralistic. I well understand we live in an age of political correctness and it is not a good thing in the eyes of most to oppose pluralism. That word just simply means let everybody do what they want. God doesn't do that. He never did. He never will. He says by his own recognition, I will let you make your choice, but I'm going to judge you by the choice you make. And one day you will understand that there is one God and there's one Father. And every knee will bow before Christ, Philippians 2, 11 and 12. And if you didn't on earth, you will at judgment. But by that time, it'll be too late. You see, we do not live in this age of materialism spiritually. Men may say we do, but we do not. There is one body and one spirit, even as you're called and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Perhaps no greater text than that opposes the concept of pluralism, there's one way. Sometimes we sing a song, there's just one way to the pearly gates. Men may say there's two, a half dozen, or any number of ways, but sadly enough, men are wrong. We understand that there is but one way. You and I are tempted to compromise the truth. I've listed some other texts for your consideration. As we draw near shortly to the conclusion of our lesson, may we be admonished to buy the truth and sell it not. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding, Proverbs 23, 23. In conclusion to the lesson today, these things that we've seen are great pressures. We are encouraged by way of the world to engage in all of these, and Satan would be happier still if we would engage in any number of them. May we see, though, that there is an exit from the Christian's pressure chamber when we, by consideration of strongness and devout faith, will take hold of the hand of the Savior and never let go. We will be led through life and we shall conquer all of these pressures. We will come through the pressure chamber and just like that church of which we noted earlier, we will receive the crown of life. 
you and I may be under pressure to apostatize, under pressure to be lukewarm, under pressure to please men or to conform to the world, under pressure to be dishonest, under pressure even to be lazy or compromise the truth. You and I, though, can overcome through the power of the Scriptures, and we're warned against all of them. This very morning, what about your life and mine? Might there be one or more in need of a public response to the gospel? Perhaps you've never become a Christian initially. So far, Satan has the ascendancy in your life. Come to Jesus, humbly submit to His will, believe Him to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His glorious name as the Son of God, and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Upon so doing, Christ will add you to the church. You will then be enrolled in the Lamb's Book of Life. If you've done that but have not remained faithful, you've walked away from the truth, you have apostatized, you've conformed to the world, you've lived in laziness, or any of these other things we've seen, come back to that first love today. If we could be of assistance to you in either of those ways, will you not let that be known publicly even now while together we stand and while we sing?